is Bloomberg Surveillance. Whoever wins the White House, I just don't have much confidence they can get much done anyway. I don't care if it's right or it's left wing. Equities from a longer term perspective are still the place to be, but we're going to see some volatility heading into the summer and into the fall. What we've got is a economy that is already very dependent on those undocumented immigrants who are here and many of whom have been here for years. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen. Bloomberg Surveillance worldwide across this nation. Sirius and XM, Channel 119. Good morning in Washington. Bloomberg 991, Bloomberg 1200, Boston, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. On the West Coast, good early morning in San Francisco, 960, the Bay Area. Particular good morning to Philadelphia. For those listening on uh, 1130 New York and also Sirius XM Channel 119, uh, it is always good to speak to Jack Bogle, and we'll dive into that uh, in this uh, hour. Futures negative nine, Dow futures negative 57. Uh, as we begin a new hour of surveillance, the Forex Brief, it's brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best. Retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. I want to get through this quickly. David Wilson has a busy agenda today. Yen 112.96. Stronger yen, a weaker dollar uh, at the same uh, time. Hydrocarbon currencies finally give back a little bit of the five, six days of glory they've had. Uh, Canada 133.28. I might also point out Russian rubles 71. 58, that's a tear from 80 to 71. Somebody made money going long ruble. Were you long ruble, David Wilson? I was not. I was not either. I missed the commodity bounce. Big debate this morning. Goldman Sachs saying, yeah, maybe Bruno Stanziel of Eurasia Group with some thought on a bid on oil. Do you have any oil stocks today? Or I mean, Chevron with her <coughs> cap spending cover. What do you have today? Well, we might as well talk about a related industry then. Please. Solar. Yes. I mean, there's been for some time concern about Sun Edison's plans yeah. to buy Vivint Solar for $1.9 billion. Sun Edison focusing on utility-sized solar plants. Vivint doing roof, rooftop solar installations. In fact, Appaloosa Management's David Tepper uh, came out against the deal. And indeed, his view prevailed because uh, Vivint backed out of the transaction yesterday uh, it said in a statement that Sun Edison failed to meet obligations. So you've got Vivint shares down 4%, as you might expect. Sun Edison, though, is up 25%, and so are two affiliates of Sun Edison that own power plants. There's Terraform Power, which is up 12.5%, and Terraform Global up 4.5%. So uh, yeah, this is going over well yeah, from the Sun Edison side. Just to stop here, you've been following this for years with your good work at Bloomberg News. Nobody makes money in this business, from what I can tell. I mean, it's not even like the biotechs where they have a hope of selling to a European pharmaceutical dumb enough to buy them. Well, with the power plants, <clears throat> the bigger ones, there's at least some potential. potential. And then there was this okay. whole push. Terraform, uh, both of those companies are what they call yield co's, uh, sort of equivalent to master limited partnerships uh, in the sense that, you know, that solar companies could sell on their okay. projects. Give me something with cash flow. Oh, please. Um, 
I've got a couple more solar companies to talk about oh, first. NRG Energy and Solar City. Uh, they signed contracts to install ro- rooftop systems at Whole Foods markets, grocery stores, and distribution centers. NRG Energy up three and a half percent, and Solar City up five percent. Royal Caribbean Cruises down two and a half percent. Today is the last day of trading for the cruise line owners' shares in Norway. Royal Caribbean has its main listing on the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> JetBlue Airways down five and a half percent. The carrier forecast first quarter revenue for Every seat and mile flown will fall at least 7% and possibly as much as 8%. And on that basis, February revenue dropped about 10%. Turning to earnings really fast. Dick's Sporting Goods down 3.5%. The retailer's fiscal fourth quarter earnings and sales failed to meet analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Dick's earnings forecast for this year also came up short of projections. Urban Outfitters, though, up 8.5%. Mm. The power retailer's earnings for the fiscal fourth quarter beat analyst's highest estimate. And we should note Shake Shack. Down 9%. The restaurant chain forecasting same store sales will rise right. 3% this year at best after climbing last year by 13%. David Wilson, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. It is always good to have a number of guests, Michael McKee, where the young guy is going to be 87 in May. Uh, that, that's a that's a good thing. Jack Bogle it's, joins us now. It's great to have now. a guest who's older than For, you and I. Yeah, well, we had Chairman Greenspan on celebrating his 90th birthday, so let's go with a young guy, Jack Bogle, yeah. uh, this morning. Jack, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Tom. Good to hear your voice again. One, wonderful to talk to you. I'm just looking at a bellwether active manager that will be renamed nameless. They've got a great five-year upper decile track record, and all the track record was made by not losing money in down markets. How does passive investing do in down markets? Well, it does really well. Uh, And we've had a lot of down markets in my career. And most recently in this one, I just saw a piece of data from Morningstar last evening. And I think they said from high to low, uh, the market was off uh, maybe 12 points, and the average mutual fund was off maybe 14 so it doesn't, you know, it, it, that's unusual. Usually when the market goes down, Tom, the, the index goes down just about as much as the average fund because the costs don't have any chance to come into play, the low cost, right. the big cost differential uh, when, when the market goes down. But th- this time, this, this last decline has been singularly good with the S&P doing much better than the average manager. There is uh, passive investing and then there's, Automated passive investing. This is a new trend I've been uh, looking at um, where you can basically just have a direct deposit go to one of these companies that does this, and they have a passive investing uh, system, and you just stick the money in, and, and it goes in, and the computer manages your money. What do you think of, of that? Well, there are a lot of varieties of it, but the big ones, I'd call them probably Betterment and Wealthfront, uh, do a pretty good job. Uh, they they do it with exchange-traded funds, but they don't trade them. And uh, your money is going to typically go into something like a 60-40, a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, uh, with the stock index being a broad index, usually the S&P 500, and the bond index being the total bond market index. And so it's it's um, it's it's basically passive uh, passive investing using passive funds. Is it a good idea to to uh, have an automatic investment plan like that um, and basically sort of set it and forget it uh, and not pay any attention to the markets, et cetera? 
Well, yes, indeed. That I mean, that's basically my philosophy writ large. Uh, don't do something; just stand there. Uh, stay the course. You know, you know all I've been saying over the years, Tom. And uh, mm. they're they're doing this in a little more formal way, and they they do claim, and I believe deliver on the mm. ability to do tax loss harvesting, harvesting, uh, which might add a little value for the client. Uh, their overall returns, I think, are going to pretty much match the market index. <laughs> they're not going to outpace the market by any material extent. I'd be very surprised if they did. The cl- and they all look pretty much the same, the big ones. Yeah, the classic book near 20 years ago, Common Sense on Mutual Funds, New Imperatives for the Intelligent Investor. Is dividend growth your new imperative? To, get, to clarify here, folks, year-to-date, 87th percentile. One year, 96, I did, that's not a typo, I just said that, 96th percentile, five year, 93 percentile. Mr. Bogle, g- dividend growth seems to be working. Dividend growth does work, and uh, dividend growth, uh, let me see if I can broaden it a little bit. If you look at the S&P 500 index, uh, that dividend, the cash dividend, has gone up almost, well, it's gone up for about um, – 40 consecutive years with a couple of mild, very, very mild declines, and then a big decline in uh, 2007, 2009 when the bank stocks cut their dividends. And the, the only thing, that I think there was a 23% cut that year in the, in the S&P dividend. That's extraordinary. Like anything else, it could happen again. And like everything else, it has happened before back in the Depression. But it's a very steady series, and so that's just buying uh, the market yield, and not going for any particular growth pattern because dividends grow, and it's a powerful force. Uh, is is the best thing to use ETFs, or is the best thing to um, use uh, you know a, a fund that will invest for you? Well, an ETF is an index fund that you can trade all day long in real time, as their, their early advertisement said. I don't agree that it's a good a good thing to trade mutual funds. And uh, I think most responsible commentators agree with me, Warren Buffett certainly, uh, the academics out in, the, out in California who have done studies of, uh, the fa- of the fact that the higher your turnover is than individual's portfolio turnover is, the worse their record is. So um, it, it's uh, ETFs mm-hmm. allow you to trade, but if you don't trade them, um, you, they're fine. Uh, they're actually, they actually work pretty well. I think that part of the ETF market is probably as low as maybe uh, 20%. Maybe okay. 10, that, that may be on the high so, side. Jack, let's come back and continue this thought. We are with Jack Bogle, of course, for years associated with Vanguard, without question the inventor of passive investments. I'm going to talk to him about leverage. We'll talk to Jack Bogle about leverage here in a moment. Futures deteriorate negative 11 Let's check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton are the favorites heading into today's presidential primaries. Republicans will vote today in Michigan, Mississippi, Idaho, and Hawaii. Democrats will vote in Michigan and Mississippi. A jury has awarded sportscaster Aaron Andrews $55 million in her lawsuit against a Nashville hotel and a stalker who secretly recorded a video of her in the nude. Andrews had sued for $75 million. The mayor of DeBerry, Florida, says he wants to better understand what Cuban migrants go through when crossing the Florida Straits. According to the Daytona Beach News Journal, Mayor Clint Johnson plans to visit Cuba next month and return home 
on a makeshift raft that he will build while in Cuba. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists, more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? And Michael Barr, thanks so much. Futures deteriorate, negative 11, Dow futures negative 77. I'm going to call it a jumble to the market, and you see that uh, typically uh, the few days after the jobs report. We're with Jack Bogle. Stay with us. Market Drivers brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. No matter what the weather, Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive brings peace of mind and driving confidence. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are signaling equities may halt their best winning streak in five months. After worsening economic data from Asia reignited concern over the outlook for global growth. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down 11 points. Dow E-mini futures down 78. And Nasdaq E-mini futures down 26. DAX in Germany is down three-tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury up 20.30 seconds. The yield 1.83 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.87 percent. NYMEX crude oil down six-tenths percent or 22 cents to 37.68 a barrel. COMEX gold is up eight-tenths percent or $10.30 to 12.74.40 an ounce. The euro, $1.1039. The yen won 12.89. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karamaska, thank you very much. We're talking with uh, Jack Bogle. He's, uh, of course, the founder, retired CEO of uh, the Vanguard Group. And uh, we're talking about uh, investing for for the average person out there. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Jack, what uh, you think of the phenomenon of negative interest rates and how they hit the average person. Uh, I note that uh, Nikkei, uh, the Japanese newspaper, reporting that all 11 Japanese asset managers who are running money market funds are closing them because they can't make uh, make them uh, work with negative interest rates. <laughs> the numbers just aren't there. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me say this. This is a, a pretty much unprecedented. Uh, it's only right now in Japan, although it could spread a little further around the world, but Japan has always been notable for the very lowest interest rates. And uh, I, I think it's imponderable. Um, the, the, the typical saver in the U.S., and certainly including in the U.S., has really been badly hurt by this drop in interest rates. And, you know, it's just a tautology that uh, low interest rates are great for borrowers and terrible for lenders. And there's no way around that <laughs> that equation. And uh, so there, the, our, our savers in the United States have been taken on the nose for, you know, pretty close to a decade now. So I don't look at it as a very good situation. But I think we're in a period of such low inflation that you can't, you, you aren't going to be able to look for much higher yields in the yeah. bond area for as far ahead as the eye can see, which I quickly add is not very far. Jack Bogle, my grandfather once showed me his bond blotter from another time and place, the 20s, and he showed me the day that he made a 3% coupon, and he said that was extraordinary, that if you could get 3%, Mike, and not 2.25 or Two and an eighth. That was living large. Is that where we're heading to, Jack? Well, uh, we're, we're, we're. I'm not sure what instrument that is, uh, but the uh, corporate bond. Your treasury is at 1.8 or 1.9 today. 1.9 percent. Uh, that's very low. But on the other hand, what you have to take into account is we're in a time of very low inflation, and 
the real yields on bonds and stocks are not all that bad, believe it or not, from a historical standpoint. Uh, you know, yes, in, since 1950, uh, the average yield of a stock bond portfolio has been about 4.5% nominal. But when you take inflation out of that period, the average the average yield of stock and same stock and bond portfolio, 50-50 we're using here, is nine-tenths of 1%. Um, so there's a big difference between 45 and 0.9, yeah. but it seems like it seems like investors almost would rather have this gets to the negative interest rate question too. Almost would rather have an eight percent return with nine percent inflation than they would a five percent return and two percent. No, that's the money illusion. I mean, that makes, yeah. No, that makes no mathematical sense. No, but we we look at the real returns, the nominal returns first. Yeah, I mean I'll go with that, Mike. Let me quote you. This is the Vanguard. Total bond fund, the legendary VBTIX, Jack Bogle, basically invented this industry. Uh, fund performance, 3.48, 2 1.93, 1.69% spread out over the last five years. I mean, Mike, we forget it's single-digit world. Uh what do you do when uh, you're in a situation, as we found at the beginning of this year, when Nothing when when everything is correlated negatively, put it that way, when nothing works. Well, I think what you do is stay the course, and I th I know what you do not do is go out and reach for yield and take a lot of extra risk. Uh, I'm a very strong proponent of staying within the returns earned by the bond market and earned by the stock market, and uh, not trying to think you're smarter than the market. In my very first book. Uh, Bogle on mutual fund. I said, don't think you are smarter than the market. Nobody is. It's all these opinions come together. And I think what's left out of these factors is this, this at least consideration that we're in such a low inflation world that the lowest I can ever recall, and I go back a long way. I mean, I guess I, I don't remember what they were in the 30s, I confess. Uh, but um, it's the, the the average return, as I mentioned a minute ago, on that treasury was 5.7 percent, and that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty healthy number compared to where we are today, to say the least. But it's a nominal number, and uh, once you take out uh, the the uh, mm -hmm. inflation, it's, it comes way down to less than one percent, and uh, so it's a, a tough time for investors. But you have to do something. Uh, you know, putting your money under the mattress isn't a good idea, not very safe there. Putting in the bank savings deposit is going to be having even lower yields, uh, about the same, maybe a little higher mm -hmm. than money market funds, actually, because banks aren't bound to, bound to, to the uh, levels of the market return. But I think it comes down to stocks and bonds. Uh -huh. And if you don't, if you say, I'm through with this, I'm going to put it all in cash, who's going to tell you when mm -hmm. to get back in? Uh, so you got to be right twice, right to get out, yeah. and then right to get back in. That's a, that's a that's a full order. Jack, good to catch up. Jack Bogle with Vanguard, of course, and his good work over uh, many decades to uh, the investment uh, knowledge and the investment psychology of America. Uh, Mr. Bogle will uh, celebrate an 87th birthday, Mike, in May, which is oh, a very well, cool and beautiful thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, negative 12, uh, we need to get, to get the markets open here in, in five and a half minutes. Negative 12 on futures. Dow futures negative 89. Um, I, I don't see much angst out there, folks. Mostly it's just a jumble to the market looking for guidance. Part of that guidance 
of course, is um, Fed speakers uh, coming up as we get to March 16th. Uh, about ready to go into the quiet period, to say the least. The meetings for your calendar, March 16th, April 27th, out to June 15th before we get to the 4th of July. We can say that because it is gorgeous in New York this week. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. We're counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. In the future, the asset management business will be profoundly different. Find out how SEI's global operating platform can help you navigate the new operational frontier at SEIC.com slash imagine. Good morning. I'm Karad Moscow along with Tom Keen and Michael McKee. And stocks are lower at the open. The S&P 500 is down half percent or nine points to 1992. Dow Jones Industrial Average down four tenths percent or 61 points to 17,012. NASDAQ down seven tenths percent or 33 points to 46.75. Ten-year Treasury up 12.30 seconds. The yield 1.82 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.86 percent. NYMEX crude oil down nine tenths percent or 36 cents to 37.56 a barrel. COMEX gold is up eight tenths percent or ten dollars forty cents to 12.74.50 an ounce. The euro a dollar ten forty-seven. The yen 112.80. Tom and Mike. Bloomberg surveillance. Karen, thank you uh, so much, Mike. We need to speak to a gentleman. His, his mother was such an embarrassment. She would open up bank accounts just to get toasters. Mike Regan grew up <laughs> with like 45 toasters uh, off in the pantry. Uh, Tom, you know, it's funny. My mom in her later years actually got a ba- uh, job at a bank in her, in her 60s and 70s, but her eyesight was so bad she kept getting the 20s <laughs> and the 50s mixed up, and she lasted about a week. But uh, that tells you something about that the financial acu- acumen of our uh, – Mike, bring in Mike, but this, this article from Michael Regan is an act of God. It is the first clear, short read – on what's going away on all five corners of New York City. <laughs> well, it's not just New York City. I mean, if if there's money, banks will be there. But it's the places, uh, Mike, you're writing about uh, that where there may not be as much money, but they still need banks. Right. They're right. They're referring to them as banking deserts. Uh, and it was I, I basically writing about uh, uh, some research that the Federal Reserve's Liberty Street blog was was uh, blogging about yesterday. If you want to, you know, if anyone wants to Google that and find it, and it's a fascinating concept. You think, okay. Banks are aggressively closing branches. Uh, why? Well, everyone's banking online. They're banking on their phones. You know, they just don't need this physical footprint as much as, as they used to. And you would think on first glance, well, well who cares, right? Uh, does it really matter? But there is some concern that they're especially closing them in sort of low-income, minority-heavy uh, areas um, where there's not as much affluence. Uh, Citigroup, Tom, for example, is closing all its uh, banks in Boston. I don't know what that means. It's, about a, it's an under, you know, Wellesley Hills is an under, 
yeah. disadvantaged area. So, but the idea that they're they're looking into, and they they cited some uh, research from uh, uh, some professors at Berkeley uh, in California, saying that what happens is when you when all of a sudden a neighborhood doesn't have uh, any bank branches. The small business owners a lot of times can be sort of cut out from some, you know, bank funding that they normally would have gotten. And they talk about what they call soft information. You know, a, a community banker gets to know the local business trends. They get to know their customers. And it's not just all their credit scores and hard data like that that they look at. They, they're able to extend loans that maybe an algorithm or a purely mathematical look at a, a business wouldn't extend to a small business. And then that leaves these small businesses sort of having to scrape around to try to find something else, sort of these predatory type of lenders that a lot of people are talking about. So it's an interesting concept. And, and, and to me, I think the banks really – the banks have greatly, obviously, recovered from the financial crisis. The one area they never recovered from is, is the PR. And, and, you know, you look at uh, Bernie Sanders and everyone trying to break up the, the big banks. I think this is a big PR story for them that they might want to get ahead of in, in as far yeah, as. Your bar charts, Michael, are, are just stunning. Yeah. The, the credit you. card growth that comes from digital versus bricks and mortars, the pruning of branches, the rate of change. And what we observe in New York, they're all empty. Yeah. And yeah. I assume they're all empty to everyone listening to this nationwide. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of banks talk about their bank of the future, you know, and they're trying to sort of make them these glitzy, small, much, very much smaller footprint, smaller employees, but sort of, you know, flashy digital screens and that sort of thing. Nobody so, cares. So no, no one really cares, yeah. What about small banks coming in? I mean, Mike, the, the void is always, particularly in poor areas, I'm sorry, yeah. whether it's credit unions or small banks, that's been what we've done since, you know, pre-revolutionary war times. Right, and that's that's what this research looked at. You know, a lot, obviously, banks are rethinking their branch strategy across the board, so they are closing branches not necessarily reopening them in the poor areas as much as they would in other areas. So it is, you know, it, it's something the Fed's looking at, and it's a, it's a pretty fascinating topic. Uh, we should note that you're writing this for Bloomberg Gadfly and the terminal GADF Co. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, so people can see it there. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, uh, folks, this morning, brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers. Is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. Michael Regan with us with Bloomberg Gadfly. He sits two desks away from Lisa Bramowitz. They're not on speaking terms. Um, <laughs> it, it's going great. I mean, Gadfly every day, there's things of value. How, how much are you getting out of the equity markets now? What is the theme that you're seeing from strategists, the change that you're seeing from strategists. Well, I'm curious. I'm curious what you think about this, Tom. But I'm semi fascinated with the idea of round numbers. And we look at 2000 in the S&P 500, and literally on Friday, I think it closed at 19.99. 1987 you know, right yeah, now. Yeah. So it's struggling at that level. Right above that 2000 level is also about uh, 2020 in the S&P 500 is the 200-day moving average which is the next big level that everyone's looking at. That's a trend line that's been going down, downward sloping, since the turmoil in August, since all the volatility in August. So 
pretty soon in order to even just to keep track with the 200 day moving average, it means it's, it's going to be pushing the market down. Uh, if you believe in that. And, you know, a lot of people look at the 200 day. It's probably the most followed, one of the most followed trend lines. Uh, there's a belief that a lot of high frequency trading, uh, you know, looks at it and, and uses that as one of its inputs in, in its, uh, in their algorithm. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting level. We had this huge almost 10% rebound in, in little less than a month. But it really is stalling out right at that round number of 2,000 and, you know, a little bit below the 200-day moving average. To review this, the modest death cross, August 27th, 2015, called a year ago. We had a lovely kiss, for the most part, beginning of the year. And now we've rolled over once again, and we begin to come up by that descending 200-day moving average. To me, they're just dampened trends. Right. I've never put a lot into two series Right. Moving averages. I use three moving averages to give me some sort of belief. And frankly, right now, they're a little soggy as well. Are they? Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I think in any case, when you're in this sort of period of time uh, right now where there's not a lot of earnings, not a lot of fundamental uh, issues coming into the market, um, you know, we'll have the Fed next week. But in the, before that, they're all in a blackout period where we're not going to hear much from them. So I think people are looking at the charts these days a lot more uh, than they would have otherwise. I agree. Charts, when you get into some form of bear market, charts come up right now. The yeah. fancy stuff I look at, folks, is indeterminate off of some mumbo jumbo called ADXI, <laughs> uh, ADXDMI, I should say. Uh, the more shorter term moving averages I, I use have a modest up tilt to them, but modest would be the operative word. Congratulations you on your bank stuff. Oh, thank this you. This is great. Are you, are you enjoying writing for Bloomberg Getfly? I love it, yeah. I think it's a great concept, you know, really trying to be yeah. critical and sort and of short. provocative and short. And they, they force you to do this in like 12 words, right? Hey, I'll write short. I'll, I'll be done in 100 words if you need me. Okay. <laughs> then I'll go go to lunch. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Michael Regan from Bloomberg Gadfly. We're, we're, we're going to do radio Bloomberg Gadfly, and um, Al from New Jersey wanted to call it, put a cork in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's still under consideration. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Regan, thank you so much. The Dow, negative 81. The VIX, 18.36. Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. It's primary day today in several states, with the biggest one in Michigan. For Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, Michigan offers a test of his growing popularity among blue-collar white voters. Trump tells ABC News today the establishment attacks against him are not working. They're spending tens of millions of dollars on fighting me, the establishment, and, you know, they would rather not see me in there, obviously. You know, you had failed people like Mitt Romney talking. He's a failed, one of the worst campaigns I've ever witnessed in my life. Mississippi, Idaho, and Hawaii also hold Republican contests. Democrats vote in Michigan and Mississippi today. A downed tree on the tracks reportedly caused a commuter train to derail in Northern California, sending its lead car plunging into a swollen creek. The Alameda County Sheriff's Department says nine people were injured, including four seriously. A U.S. airstrike has killed at least 150 al-Shabaab militants at a training camp in Somalia. It's believed the militants were about to launch an attack. Intelligence officials say the airstrikes targeted a camp run by Islamic extremists. 
in a forested area more than 120 miles north of Mogadishu. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael Barr, thanks so much. Again, negative 105 on the Dow. First quiet day. We get below 17,016.971 on the Dow. S&P 1986. Down a full 15 points. Michael McKee and Tom Keen on economics, finance, investment, on international relations. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by T2 Computing, a new kind of IT solutions company for workflow, mobility, and infrastructure. Let them explain how their expertise can help you gain greater business value. Visit T2Computing.com for more information. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. Stocks are retreating from nine-week highs following the S&P 500's longest winning streak in five months. After worsening economic data from Asia, reignited concern over the outlook for global growth. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 down 8 tenths percent or 15 points to 1985. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 6 tenths percent or 108 points to 16,965. And the Nasdaq's down 7 tenths percent or 34 points to 46.74. Ten-year Treasury up 23.30 seconds. The yield 1.82 percent. Yield on the two-year 0.86 percent. Nymex crude oil down 2.1 percent or 79 cents to 37.11 a barrel. Comex gold up 3 tenths percent or $4 to 12.68 an ounce. The euro, a dollar ten forty one. The yen, one twelve point seven zero. Two United Continental Holdings shareholders will nominate airline turnaround artist Gordon Bethune to lead a slate of new directors in an effort to overhaul the airline's management. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway said it'll sell bonds in part to repay a $10 billion loan used to finance its purchase of precision cast parts. And Sanofi and Merck plan to end a two-decade-long joint venture to sell vaccines in Europe as revenue from the products dwindles. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg Surveillance is Tuesday. Brought to you by Mark's Panath, LLP, ranked among the top three forensic accounting firms in New York by the New York Law Journal for the sixth year in a row. Visit MarksPanath.com, M-A-R-K-S, Panath, P-A-N-E-T-H, MarksPanath.com. And we thank them. Looking forward to the seventh year uh, in a row, the sixth year in a row that they uh, work in this difficult area of forensic accounting. Brian Jacobson is a brave soul. He's with Wells Fargo, and he thinks about what to do with money, particularly in a single-digit world. Brian, you beautifully revisit dollar cost averaging, which by definition works within greater volatility and a double-digit world. Can dollar cost averaging work in a lethargic, low-return world? Well, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, it's not that brave to say let's go with the tried and true method of uh, saving early and saving often, which entails dollar cost averaging. Uh, the problems I think everybody's trying to pick a top or pick a bottom as far as when they're doing their allocations and uh, living in a binary world like that can create a lot of volatility with your portfolio. And, in fact, if you have a volatile market, the dollar cost averaging can really help you uh, sort of smooth out uh, the, the cost basis of your portfolio. Yes, ideally, we'd like to pick the bottom for getting in, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's somewhat of a fool's errand. Yeah, but within that is the new regime we're in. 
I mean, if we can all agree we've moved from 20% a year to 12% a year to somewhere south, the major metric I see is we just have to put aside more money. I mean, that's what we've heard interview after interview. When there's that desperation to put aside more money, is the first order condition to just put it aside, or does DCA really work? Well, I think that the first thing you need to do is to increase the amount that you are saving to reach those long-term financial goals. Because in a low interest rate environment, if you think about uh, uh, it's not just a low interest rate environment, but we all face the prospect, thankfully, of having longer life expectancies when we're in retirement. And that increases that uh, that liability effectively that you're trying to fund. So you have that longer time frame and you have lower interest rates, and that means that now you need to save a little bit more, which is, I think, behaviorally what people have been doing. We've seen an uptick in the savings rate in the United States, so that's encouraging. But uh, for investors who are looking at how then to enter the market, I think that dollar cost averaging where you're doing it every single month or maybe even every single week uh, – if you can increase the frequency with which you do it, that can really help. So even if you don't have a directional market where it's moving up or it's moving down, even if there's just that volatility where you've got lots of ups and lots of downs, uh, the dollar cost averaging can cover over a multitude of market timing sins. You mentioned save early, save often. Now, let me bring up something I was talking about with uh, Jack Bogle a little while ago, and that's these uh, firms now. I realize you're at, at Wells, but firms that uh, suggest you uh, direct deposit some of your paycheck into stock funds uh, that they manage, uh, you know, passively. Um, is is the market the best place to save? For many people, it might not be the best place to save if you aren't necessarily fully funded with uh, what I refer to as your your liquidity bucket or your precautionary balance bucket. You might want to fill those up first before you look at some of those, uh, you know, perhaps riskier parts of the market. I think that for a lot of people, it's somewhat uncomfortable to see the volatility in their portfolio if they don't first build up that base level of savings that they need to to weather certain market storms. Uh, one of the you know old classics in, uh, in financial economics is almost uh, if you think about it as building a pyramid, if you will. You know everybody's probably heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to take care of that base level first. And I think for a lot of people, mm-hmm. you have to have that safety first principle, which is make sure you have enough cash balances and precautionary <laughs> balances that you don't have to fixate on right. the daily ups and downs of the market. Uh, Brian Jacobson with us with Wells Fargo. Brian, um, I turn to the Center for Retirement Research, Boston College. Alicia Manel and the people up there are doing absolutely brilliant, acutely mathematical work on what we're doing actually with our money. And one of their great studies of the autumn of last year is a basic idea as the kids leave home, and we, it's, it's laughable how minimal people increase their 401Ks, their retirement plans, when supposedly the tuition bills are done. What is your prescription to change retirement savings behavior? Does the government have to step in and, and just massively increase the incentives to go to 401K? 
You know, that's a real tricky question because they have increased the incentives to go to the, uh, the 401k, but that doesn't really seem to be doing it for a lot exactly. of people. I think, exactly. I think yeah. changing the rules as far as, uh, you know, they took a big step forward by having uh, default enrollment as being an option, effectively taking care, uh, taking advantage of our laziness. I think that might be a good way to uh, perhaps nudge people into saving more prudently for their retirement. You can put things more on autopilot in terms of having automatic escalations of your contributions to your 401k. So I think that just allowing plan sponsors to design plans that better fit the behavior of planned participants mm-hmm. will really go a long way to helping people fund their retirements. Otherwise, you get into a situation yeah. where, like it or not, we'll just all have to work a little bit longer in retirement. Yeah, my, my headline on this, and this comes from a lot of work, I, a major shout-out to Peter Orzag and his time at Brookings, is the bottom half, bottom two-thirds of the country, have to be massively incentivized to get going on this. Well, uh, now we've talked about uh, people putting their money in the markets. What are you expecting from the markets? You had a fairly uh, aggressive call for uh, the S&P 500 this year, and we've had a fairly lousy first couple of months. Uh, Are you still sticking with that? I am, and actually there was a Bloomberg brief uh, that just came out this morning uh, where they uh, did a little uh, interview, a Q&A with me, and that was a lot of fun to discuss. And unlike a lot of people, I haven't really lowered my targets for the S&P 500 for the uh, balance of the year. I still think we could see 2250 on the S&P 500. I'm not saying we're going to end the year at those levels. I think that, you know, trying to pick what's the level of the S&P at, uh, you know, the last day of the year, why not just ask me what it's going to be on, you know, June 3rd or some other random date. I think that I usually think of these things in terms of trading ranges, and I think that we could move up to 2250 if we get – there's three key things that we need to see. I think we Mm -hmm. need to see – additional policy moves out of China to stabilize their economy and their currency. I think we need to see the ECB, instead of having a draggy disappointment like we had in December, I think he needs to beat expectations when they meet on March 10th. And we need to see the Fed be very patient when it comes to hiking rates. I think that Lael Brainard, when she was speaking yesterday, she did a very good job of outlining the reasons for why the Fed should be very cautious when it comes to hiking rates. Brian, thank you so much. Brian Jacobson with Wells Fargo with uh, uh, something we don't spend enough time on, which is the shaky retirement structure of uh, the nation. Mike, I can't say enough about Alicia Monell's work at Boston College at the CRR. I've been a leader on that. And it's, it's just, it's just jaw-dropping. I, I will mince no words. The failure of ERISA of 1974 is just stark as can be. And, you know, we can't do enough discussion of that. should bring her on, and uh, she can give us advice for people who have children who will need to be educated and therefore cannot retire. Yeah. What our savings plan, Jimmy? But, you know, we came out of this, folks, with Eisenhower and then Jimmy Carter and, and, and President Reagan and others jump-starting ourselves into an organized retirement. It was all based on choice and freedom. And remember, you got toasters and... Free flags and bagels were served, and for, I believe, the working number Alicia has is for 81% of Americans, 8 out of 10, it hasn't worked. It's just all there is uh, to it. Somehow, I think we'll be doing more of that as we go through 2016. Right now, a pause in the market. It's been really a a good number of days, negative 95. 
On the Dow, then down 13 points on the S&P 500, 1989. The Dow under 17,000. The VIX 18.40. One year trailing return, S&P 500, negative 4%. The Dow, negative 5%. Looking back 12 months. We are produced by YU Yen. Ken Felio, our global technical director, is Bloomberg Surveillance.